0: The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. God, thank you so much for this opportunity to open your word, Lord, to learn of you, to grow in the knowledge and understanding of your grace. And Lord, for myself in this particular role this morning, Lord, you know. Lord, I am riddled with weakness. But Lord, just 2 Corinthians, which we just finished studying, shows that it is through weakness that we find strength in you. So Lord, we know that you have all power and might, uh, more than we could possibly imagine. So Lord, I pray that you would find good partnership with my weakness, that your gospel might be proclaimed this morning. I pray, God, that your spirit would even anoint or guard, I should say, even the very things that are said the very thoughts we all have in our own head as we sit here, God, and give us the ability, we pray, by your mercy, to learn of you, to grow closer to you, to, that you would be magnified in our lives. I pray, God, your word tells us that without the Spirit, there's no understanding of these things, for they're spiritually discerned. And so I pray, God, that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher this morning. And I pray, God, for this season in Galatians, Lord, that it would be transformative in our church. Lord, as the word says that in you there is liberty, but Lord, for so many people, our experience with you and with Christianity has been marked by anything but freedom. And so I pray, God, you would set people free as we open this book. So Lord, I pray, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O my King, my Rock, and my Redeemer. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Galatians chapter 1. Let's kick it off this way. Let me ask you guys a question. What is your view or what do you feel towards God's law? Like, not just the Bible in general, but I mean God's law, His commands, His precepts, whether it be the Ten Commandments or wherever they are, what does that stir in you? What do you feel towards God's law? Now, I understand we're in church, so if I was to say, what do you think about God's law? We would give the church answers, wouldn't we not? Oh, it's beautiful. God's law is beautiful. What would we do without it? It's a treasure. I can't believe we have this. I've got like 12 different Bibles at home. I love them all. Like we would give those answers. I understand that. But, but if we were to really press down, secret ballot, whatever you want to call it, what do you feel towards God's law? What emotion does it bring up in you? What would you say? I think few of us would say love if I had to guess and if we were being honest. I mean like love, do you love? Like love? God's law? Jeff, wait, this is like, it's like the Ten Commandments right? Yeah, I'm not talking about like the Gospels. I'm not talking about, I'm talking about the law, the commandments of God. Does it produce love in you? For most people it doesn't produce that kind of love, joy, delight. For most people God's law, we view it as, or at least at times in our life have viewed it as burdensome. Not freeing Maybe restrictive, maybe controlling. I I know for me, I've grown up a Christian, I, I barely remember a day in which I don't know Jesus, but I remember a lot of seasons when I lived as if I didn't. Um, But also, when I look back through my Christian experience, growing up a Southern Baptist kid in Asheville, North Carolina, there in the mountains, I, I remember the Baptist, my grandfather was a Baptist preacher. We grew up in church. My family was the one, if the doors of the church were unlocked, we were walking through them. That's just the way it was. My parents were involved in everything. They were always there. And so for me, growing up, and I was learning God's word and God's law from a very, very young age, But I cannot tell you that my experience with the understanding of Scripture that I grew up in, and I mean all the way through high school and college, I cannot tell you that that experience was marked by a delight in God's law. Fear, absolutely. Worry, check. Um, All of those things. Paranoia, yes. That was my experience. See, the church that I grew up in, it is a good church, don't get me wrong, the foundation they gave me I'm so thankful for, but not just that church, but a large percentage of Christianity spent a good couple of decades in there focused on what is now referred to as moral therapeutic deism. At least that's the title they'll give you in a seminary classroom, moral therapeutic deism. The idea is this, Christianity was taught through the lens of God's law, this issue of morality. And so, in me growing up in a Southern Baptist church in North Carolina, I learned all the do's and don'ts. You do this, you do this, you do this, you do not do this and this and this. And we know all the categories, right? We worship, we go to church, we give money, we do not drink, we do not smoke, we do not cuss, we do not chew. It's North Carolina, you have to add chew. You know, all of those kinds of things. That's where it's made. And so, so we had all of that in there and I had every form of moralistic teaching you can imagine. In fact, that was all of the teaching that I received growing up. I remember in high school, do some of you guys remember that, that whole backward masking thing about secular music that it's just nonsense, that people were writing music that could be played in reverse, that had demonic messages and all of these sorts of things. And then we had a million different lessons when I was growing up about sex, about alcohol, about all those things. And look, there's truth in that and the intention in those things is good to avoid that which is harmful, all of that stuff. But the idea behind the law setting us free from that which harms, like to give us liberty and joy in life, that didn't come across at all. It was shackled. I can't do this, I can't do this, I can't do this. And then it was girded, if you will, by the understanding of God's wrath or maybe at times mom and dad's wrath. And so the idea was don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, or you're gonna get this and this and this. And so what it developed in me was a picture of God that's not not a very accurate one. I've referred to it before as the Abraham Lincoln Memorial God. Have you guys ever been to Washington, D.C. and seen the Abraham Lincoln Memorial? Some of you guys? So the Abraham Lincoln Memorial there, there's this stone, cold, white, marble, whatever it's made out of, statue. And it's cold, and it's big, and it's imposing. And he's got that serious face and that man beard, and he's got all that going on. And he's sitting there, and he's kind of looking down. And for me, for so much of my life, that was my understanding of God. That if I do well, I have approval. If I do not do well, he's just waiting on me to step out of line to just go, ah, gotcha. That was kind of my view of Christianity for a really long time. So much so that I spent many, many, many nights growing up, laying in bed at night, trying to think through in my mind, what did I do wrong today? Because somewhere, I don't know where I came up with it, I'm sure I was taught it somehow or another, or maybe it's just my sinfulness, and I I took something out of of context, very possible. But um, I had this idea in my mind of what I kinda thought of as like the big screen in the sky. That one day, I'm gonna stand before God, my judge, and he's gonna be the Abraham Lincoln, stern, looking at me, and this big screen's gonna come down, and I'm gonna be right there with the spotlight on me, and everyone, The pastor of my church, mom and dad, everyone that I grew up with is going to be there watching and on this screen is going to play a replay of my entire life. And if there's something I didn't repent of, if there's something I didn't make right, if there's something I didn't come to God and ask forgiveness of, then it's not covered and it's going to be on that screen, and it's going to be embarrassing and humiliating and horrifying. And I'll be begging for, that's, that's the Christianity that I grew up in. And I know from conversations with many of you, I am not alone in this. And so there were many nights that I laid in bed going, am I even really saved? How do I know that I'm a Christian? You say, but Jeff, come on, of course you were. You grew up in the church. Your family was always there. Dad's a deacon. Mom's doing the flowers. I mean, you guys were, of course you are. I didn't know for a long time. And the reason that I struggled with that, the reason that was hard for me is because what I was doing was always looking inside me for the evidence and and proof that I'm a Christian, I was looking at my actions. I was looking at what I did and what I didn't do. And if if the scales balanced out in such a way that I looked more spiritual than worldly, sweet, I'm in. But first of all, if such scales existed, isn't that just as moody as all get out? I mean, depending on the day, depending on the moment, who knows where you are and all that. And so I would literally think if I was to ever die suddenly, car wreck, whatever, oh, please, God, let it be on this day. You know what I'm talking about? Some of you are laughing because you've done that. And so, for many of us, if we think back through God's law, does it produce delight in us? No way. Fear, condemnation, restriction. Oh, no, I have to do this. That's the emotion many people come up with. But then you have these passages where David says, Psalm 119, for example, longest book in the entire Bible. David writes this entire, longest book in the Bible about what? The Bible about the commands specifically of God. Now, remember, this is before the Gospels were written. So he's not talking about, I love Ephesians and how it talks about who we are in Christ. I love Philippians, how we can find joy in difficulty. I love the Gospels because Jesus is so good. I love Revelation because it's all getting better. None of that is included at this time, okay? He's just got the law, the Torah, the part that maybe other than Genesis and the first part of Exodus, we don't like to read. That's what he's talking about. And here's what he writes, Psalm 119, 16, I will delight in your statutes. That word delight means an overflow of joy. It's almost like I will get giddy as I see these statutes. Not me growing up, that was not me. How about this one, Psalm one nineteen forty. I long for your precepts. <laughs> no way when I was growing up, if I could just have more law, no way. Psalm 119.47, I delight in your commandments which I love. That wasn't me. 119.03, how sweet are your words to my taste. They are sweeter than honey to my mouth. Again, if we're talking Romans and the definition of grace, I'm in. Sweet. If we're talking about Ephesians, if we're talking about all these things, heaven, a final deliverance from sin, that stuff is sweet. But growing up, If we're just talking God's law, the things I'm supposed to do and the things I'm not supposed to do, sweet to my mouth, no, sour, bitter. I can't do this. Every night I'm laying in fear because of all my failures. There's way more nights where I'm laying in bed scared about the situation than there are going to bed like, you know, I nailed it today. I think I'm a Christian. Sweet. Those days didn't come really often. Maybe that says more about my upbringing, I don't know, or my background, behavior, but for me, God's law was not a delight. It was a continual indictment. It was a constant finger pointing at me saying, Nope, nope, nope. This was God's law. Now, I wanted that to go away. And, and, and I had the New Testament. And so for me, I remember when I was young, learning how to do devotions. I would want to read some of the Psalms or I would want to read about Jesus in the Gospels. There's even people today that are referred to as red letter Christians. Just read the red letters of scripture, just Jesus' words as if the other parts aren't as ordained as well. And so people want to stay in that and ignore the law, ignore the parts that clearly point out our failures and our upbringings. But here's what you have to remember. Psalm 119, I love the law. There's delight. I, I long for your precepts. It's sweet to my taste. Who wrote that? David wrote that. He was horrible at keeping the precepts. Think about that a second. I love your law. What? You just killed a guy, David. You took his wife and impregnated her. and I mean, David was horrible at keeping those commandments, and yet David could write, I love your commandments. I love your precepts. How does that happen? Because David understood the law of God through the lens of the grace of God in a way that more of us need to understand. See, here's what happened. How do you get to that point? If you're saying, man, I I don't love the law, but I've been a Christian for a really long time. I should probably love the law, and I want to be like David maybe in that area. How do I get there? Well, you get there because the gospel transforms us. The law, maybe even in and of itself, points to our failures. But through the gospel, we begin to learn of God. We learn of this unconditional love that he approves of us, loves us, and accepts us no matter. And, and as, as we're accepted by that grace and we're adopted into the family of God and he fills us with his Holy Spirit, which gives us the ability, any shot we ever would have at actually fulfilling some of these things, is through the grace of God in our lives. And so we're filled with the Spirit, we're saved by the gospel, we understand his unconditional love, and suddenly now the law isn't a scary thing anymore because when we understand his grace, we're not afraid of the failures. It's like a child that's just learning to walk and they fall down. And a good dad's not standing over that child going, loser. What's all the, uh, let's make another one. (laughs) That's not how it works, right? That's not how it works. What does a good dad do? Picks him up. If there's tears, he holds him, sets him back and says, okay, now let's go a little further this time. Because a good dad knows that what starts as step, fall, step, fall, goes to step, step, fall, step, 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 fall, and ends with running and jumping and climbing trees. And so too, the grace of God understands, yeah, we fail, but he's doing a work in us. And we don't have to fear the failure because God's grace has been so abundant in our lives. And he sees what we're going to be on that day when, when this, this grip of sin has been completely removed from us. And, and so we are transformed by this gospel. We understand the reality of it. And now instead of knowing about God or about what God wants, which that's pretty much all I knew growing up, it wasn't about a relationship with God. I just knew what he didn't want me to do and what he did want me to do. And that he was big and I'm in trouble if I don't. Once the gospel changes you, you start realizing I have a mediator, that Jesus is a person, and I have a relationship with him, and I'm not looked at anymore by good behavior. I'm looked at through the lens of who Jesus is. And so when that gospel is proclaimed, people's lives change, and then the view of the law gets different. After salvation, the crushing expectations of the law are completely transformed. It becomes now a means by which we can give honor and glory and worship to God and grow to be like him. But it's not about earning his approval. He already gave it. It's not about if I do this, he's going to love me. No, the Bible says we have it on the thing right here. While we were sinners, he died for our sins, that he has shown his love to us in this And so there's a completely different perspective. And now David can write, even in midst of his failures, your law is sweet to my lips. It's the vessel by which not only am I shown what you forgive me of, but how I can draw closer and closer and closer to you and be like my heavenly Father who is so gracious. And it's completely different. And so when we see this, we're set free. That's what it means to be free. I'm free of that performance-driven anxiety I'm free from having to lay in bed at night wondering if I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. What a horrible thing for us to sing to our kids before we go to bed. What, isn't that horrible? We don't have to pray that anymore. When we understand the reality of the gospel, we can. if I should die on a good day or a bad day, when the scales are like this or when the scales are like this, if such a thing did exist and they don't, it's not about my performance, about what God has already done. The prodigal son was broken and wounded and had rebelled and yet found the father's arms wide open. And the legalistic son, who was angry and bitter and legalistic, also had a father coming out to him saying, Come join the celebration. His arms are open to those who will just receive his grace. This is what we're going to learn in the book of Galatians over the next couple of months. Galatians is a a new book for us. We're starting this. We're going to be in here for a couple of months. It's not a very long book, but there is some rich, deep truths here. And it's been referred to as the Magna Carta of spiritual liberty. Maybe other than the book of Romans, no other book in the Bible details the grace of God as opposed to legalistic, the law, earning God's favor. No other book covers it like this. Now, as we've said before, this book, or it was a letter originally, was written by a real person, two real people, in real time. This isn't a philosophical writing. This is a letter that was anointed by the Spirit of God and is used even today to speak to God's church. It's written by the Apostle Paul. Same author as First and Second Corinthians. We've been with Paul for a while if you include Romans and half of Acts as well. So this is written by Paul, but this one's different than Corinthians in that this letter is not written to a church. It's not written to the church of Galatia. It's written to the churches of Galatia. Galatia is not a city, it's a region. And so if you look into Acts 13 and 14, you'll see that Paul and Barnabas made a trip through Galatia. It was a very difficult trip. Um, There was illness, there was persecution. Paul even gets stoned, not that way, Oregon, gets stoned and gets left for dead. And so as he's there left for dead, and the difficulties, the illness, everything he's going through, he ends up spending more time in Galatia than he intended. And he begins to preach this message while he's there, Antioch and Lystra and these areas. And so he preaches this message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, this message of grace, and it ends up taking. This area, by the way, is what we would refer to as like modern day Turkey, that southern area of modern day Turkey. So what is the message that Paul preaches to the people in Galatia that transforms so many of these people's lives? Well, it's given to us really right in Paul's greeting. Verse 1, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from our God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever, amen. Let's turn our attention specifically to verse 4, can we, where it says, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. Now, if we say, what is the present evil age, a lot of our minds go in directions that I don't believe Paul or the Holy Spirit intended when we read these things. Um, Primarily, first of all, a lot of people, when we think of this evil age, we go right to Hollywood horror movies, and we think paranormal activity, or exorcist, or demons, and devils with pitchforks, and all these kinds of things. When we think of this evil age, we go to that like extreme darkness, pentagrams, and, and satanic worship, and just demonic evil. Now, if that's what Paul was talking about all the time, if that is the tangible right in our face thing that God is delivering us from all the time, it's a little bit ridiculous because if you would think about it, if that's what we were dealing with, I think all of us would take the precepts of God way more seriously, would you not? I mean, if your daily life consisted in dealing with a girl whose head is spinning around, floating up the wall and vomiting, I think you would read the Bible more. It's just a guess, right? That's Hollywood, that's sensationalism, and... uh, That's, our our enemy is way more subtle than that. You know that? He's way more subtle than that. The Bible even talks about the fact that he masquerades as an angel of light. In other words, a lot of times he looks really good. Sometimes very, even almost godly. But that's our enemy. And so our enemy is much more slick. There's a, a line from a movie I'm pretty sure I can't recommend. You ever done that? Like you watched a movie years ago when you weren't walking with Jesus and you forget everything that's in it. And then you're like with your Christian friend, oh, you got to watch this movie. And then later you're like, what have I done? You know that? So I won't even name the movie. If you figure it out, I do not recommend it. I'm sure it's horrible. But there was a line in a movie that said the greatest trick that the devil ever did was making the world believe he doesn't exist. Some of you are going, I know what that movie is don't judge me. (laughs) So our enemy is way more subtle than that. It's not about showing up with a pitchfork and this horrific demonic wickedness. It's much more subtle than that. In fact, Paul describes it in Romans 1 as the wickedness of the world is seen in the way that the world elevates creation above creator. That's really how you summarize what a wicked evil world looks like. That the world elevates creation over creator. And the idea is this. God created the world and gave all of us certain common graces with the idea being that this would turn our attention to the one who has created us, to the one who has gifted us with these things. But what man does in its wickedness is instead takes those things that have been given and elevates them. Instead of giving God the homage that is due for the work that he's done, we want to get God out of the equation and we want to elevate all these other things. And so we'll look to different things. We'll look either to things, just in general, for example, materialistic things, for example, And so we become people that elevate that over the God that created through men or whatever the case may be, those things. So we'll get all caught up in getting the newest computer and the newest iPad and the newest cell phone and the newest of all of those kind of things and we need more, 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 better, better, better. Now is there anything wrong with having the new iPhone? Come on, I have one. Don't leave me hanging up here. Is there anything wrong with having the new iPhone? No, unless you're using that new thing to medicate a restlessness that you have in your spirit. If you're using that thing to try to satisfy an urge that only God can satisfy, if you're taking this thing and making that your goal instead of allowing your worship, which is really what that is, to push beyond the created thing to the creator, then it's really bad because it's going to end up letting you down. It's not going to satisfy the way that you think. Think of it this way. Everything you own is future yard sale material. (laughs) Everything you own. Everything you own is future yard sale material. So how could it possibly save? But oh, Satan is so tricky because it tries to, doesn't it? Doesn't it feel good when you get that? What's better than new car smell? You know what I mean? Like, there's something about getting new things that makes you feel good, right? But that's demonic in nature if that's the end result. So we look to things. Maybe we look to people. And we put maybe a burden on people to serve, please, and fulfill us than they couldn't possibly carry. And so we want certain fulfillment from that relationship or certain approval from that person or forgiveness from someone that we're expecting in return and it never comes. And so we elevate a person into a position of idolatry, either demanding they serve us or expecting that that is where all of our worship, all of our time, all of our attention will go and they will satisfy us. Dallas Cowboy fans, this afternoon you're probably going to see what I'm talking about. (laughs) You keep putting your hope in Romo. Have you not learned yet? Oh, ye of little faith, slow to learn, as Jesus said. No, but look, people will let us down all the time. Amen? Doesn't matter who they are, pastors, sports figures, politicians, all of them. Because we were never supposed to take the created beings And elevate them above the creator. We should look at the wonder of who people are. Even the understanding of relationships and allow us to push through that. To understand that, look, I have a yearning for a relationship here. That comes from somewhere. And I want approval, and I want love, and I want affection, but something's wrong here. It's never quite right. It's never quite enough, and that should push us towards the reality that it is in Christ that we find that fulfillment. It is in Christ that we find that that, um, unconditional love and approval that we yearn for so much. And if it's not that, it's, it's drugs, it's alcohol, it's maybe worst case, it's just plain old ourselves. Like, we will fix our problems, we can deal with our things, we don't need help from anyone else, we don't need God's law telling us what to do, we are smart enough, we can figure this out. And so we end up trying to make ourselves God's, which is a horrific train wreck. But, but this happens though, because for a lot of us, and this is the religion part that might be kicking in, that maybe those of us that did grow up in church are more vulnerable to. Because what we can do is when we can read Paul say, oh, he, he gave himself so that we could be delivered from this present evil age. What we do is we look at, we define present evil age as everything out there, but not here. I'm not the evil one. I grew up in church. Are you kidding me? The evil one is all those people out there. But that's not the truth. The reality is this. We are part of a wicked, evil age because in our hearts and our inherent natures, we are wicked, evil, fallen people. You've heard it said before, we're not sinners because we sin, we sin because we're what? Sinners. The sins we commit are just byproducts of our nature, of the fact that we are a part of a wicked, evil age, that we are a fallen people who have inherited a nature from our father Adam in Genesis chapter 1. That seeks to rebel against God and elevate creation over creator. That's the world that we're a part of. So when Paul comes to Galatia, the foundational truth he's teaching them is that the gospel of Jesus Christ says that God gave himself to free us, to liberate us from this present evil age. And this is the beauty of it, is the reality that he gave himself for our sins. Why would he do such a thing? Why would God give himself for me? Well, Jeff, because you grew up in the church and you were destined to be a pastor one day and he knew you would do that, so you're worth having on the team. So I'm going to give myself for you. God chose you because of your value. Can I just tell you what a load of baloney that is? This is not true. The pastor is no different than the congregant. He just has a different role. We all have wickedness and sinfulness, and there's nothing about us. The the gospel in Romans tells us that it was while we were enemies with Christ that he died for us, that there are none who seek him. No, not one. God didn't save Jeff because he thinks Jeff is worth having on the team. God saved Jeff because look how verse 4 ends, according to the will of God our Father. He saved Jeff because he is good. good. He saved Jeff because he is gracious and decided to have mercy on someone who is not deserving of his grace. That's what grace means. Unmerited, unearned favor. That's the beauty of the gospel, that God is good. And so he has bestowed grace upon people that do not deserve his grace. And an understanding of that should result in worship. Should absolutely, as it goes on, verse 5, to whom be the glory forever and ever, amen. An understanding of the foundational truth that we have been saved from our own sinfulness by the pure grace of God according to his will should cause us to worship him and say what a great and mighty and gracious and good God you are. Amen? That's where worship comes from. That's where worship comes from. He does it simply for that. Now, this is the message that Paul preached to the church in Galatia. He opens up, I'm Paul, an apostle of Christ, to my brothers in Galatia. Here's the message I preach, the gospel. We're brothers because of this gospel. And then this is the part in the letter where Paul is supposed to shift into a prayer, In all his other letters, there's a prayer, there's thanksgiving. I'm so thankful for you. Like, remember, we read that about the Corinthians, and we were like, I can't even believe he could say such a thing. They're a train wreck. But he does. To a train wreck like the Corinthians, he's like, I thank God for you always. He doesn't do that in Galatia. In fact, Paul goes straight from, here's that gospel message that causes us to be brothers. Now, I got some issues to deal with. There's no niceties Why is that? Why does he skip the niceties? Well, let me give you an analogy that might help you understand what Paul's dealing with as we move forward in this letter. Imagine that you are in South Africa in the 1970s at the height of apartheid. You're a Christian man or woman living in South Africa, and you're seeing these horrible atrocities that are going on based strictly on skin color. And as you watch these things going, you have an understanding that's different from so many up there. You understand the reality of the imago day in Scripture that someone doesn't find their value based on skin color or what they do, but that man has an inherent dignity because they are made and created by God in the image of God. And so as you're watching this happen, you're going, This is not okay with me. And I want to do something different. You're moved and you want to do something. Oh, and by the way, you're loaded. So what you do is you go, I'm going to create a place where people can come together, get to know one another, learn of one another, and understand one another no matter who they are. I'm going to build a community center in a biracial neighborhood, and I'm going to create it in such a way that fosters community so people can get to know one another, maybe understand one another, and maybe mercy will flow for one another out of that. So, You get the money together, you buy all the materials, you're a designer too, you're really gifted. So you're a designer and you put these plans together for this awesome building that is intended to foster this kind of community. And you design it in such a way so that that is the intended outcome. So you design the building with one big room inside. No little rooms here and there because you don't want people going off, these are going over there and these are going over there. One big room one set of bathrooms, one hallway, well, I mean male and female, but like one set of bath. you have to clarify these days, one hallway going into that big room and on the outside of the building, you've got one entrance and you hang a sign over the door, welcome all, that's the plans. So you've got it all designed and you, you even start the foundation. You build the foundation exactly the way you intended it to go. It's all laid out, but something happens. As I said, you're loaded, you're a designer, you're wanted all over the world. You're so crazy skilled. And so you just finish the foundation, and you're getting ready to start with the walls. You've got people around you helping. This whole plan is in action. You've told all the other people that are with you of the plan. This is the intended outcome. And then you get a phone call. A project you've got going on in Australia at this point. It's getting off the rails. It's going to be a big problem. You need to deal with this. So what are you gonna do? Well, it's the 70s, you can't Skype, so you're gonna to have to go. So you pull together some of your people, and you're like, okay, you are the foreman, you are the guys in charge, you know my plans, here's the documents that show exactly what we're trying to do, they show what the plan is, I gotta to go to Australia, take care of this for me, g'day mates, and you're gone. So some time goes by, and they're in Australia, again, no Skype, no email, you get a letter. And as you unfold this letter, you discover that while you've been gone, some other contractors came in. It's sounding a little bit like Corinthians some, huh? As you've been gone, another group of contractors came in. And when they saw the plans, and they saw what was going on, they began to question everything. First, they're like, what kind of contractor is that guy anyway? I mean... Is he even licensed here? He's in Australia now. What does he know? I'm not sure that guy is qualified to do what he says, and certainly questioning his design. I don't think he knows what he's doing about. Second of all, we're questioning the plan in general. What is he thinking? You can't put white people and black people together in the same room. Do you know what kind of chaos is going to come out of that? That can't happen. There'll be anarchy. So we can't do this. That is reckless, what he's doing. So here's what we're going to do. And you find out they have changed everything. Now instead of one room, there's a divider wall right down the middle and there's two rooms. There's two sets of bathrooms, two sets of water fountains, two different hallways, and over the door on the outside, one says white and one says black. This is the building you funded, you poured your heart and soul into, you helped to design. This was your baby and this is what it's become. Let me ask you, how much niceties would you default to right away? This is the situation. When you read Galatians, it is right to read the book of Galatians through the lens of a righteously angry godly man who has seen this thing go off the rails in a horrible, horrible way. A way that he's more worried about here than he even is with the things going on in Corinth. The plans have gone completely off the rails. Let's look, if you will, at verses 6 through 10. Paul says this. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you, who want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again. Lest you think he just got all caught up in his emotion and said something he didn't mean. He's like, I said it. I'm going to say it one more time so you know I meant it. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So here's what's going on here. Paul, as he leaves the area of Galatia, the church has been planted, the foundation's laid, elders and people are established in all these different churches. He moves on to the next region and more false teachers come in. These men are famously referred to or infamously referred to as the Judaizers. And the Judaizers are Jewish people who have converted to Christianity but still have a real tight grip on the roots, the Jewish roots of the Christian faith. And this is a racial issue This is an ethnic racial issue that's going on. And the issue is this. When Christianity was being spread by Jews to Jews in Jewish territory, this sort of controversy wasn't really there. You had people with the same kind of background, the same sorts of understanding, the same sorts of history. These things didn't come up. But now the gospel has pushed outside of the realm of simply Israel into what's referred to as Gentile territory. And Gentile means not Jew. You're Jew or you're Gentile. And so now that the gospel is pushing out into Gentile territory, you have these Jewish people who have received, we believe, the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ, but they've grown up in a system that has looked down their nose at Gentiles their entire lives, not have anything to do with them, don't want any physical contact with them. They're second-class people. We don't want anything to do with the Jews, because own, or excuse me, with the Gentiles, because only the Jews are God's chosen people. And so now these Judaizers, who are still holding to so much of this Jewish tradition, are hearing, they come into this area, they're coming to worship, the church is there, and they start learning that Paul has preached this grace that doesn't bring anything in about any of the old Jewish practices. So, for example, circumcision. Paul did not go into that area and say, by the way, all men need to be circumcised if they're going to be Christians, He didn't go into the cleansing rituals. He didn't go into the restrictions on diet. He didn't go into any of those kind of things. He came with one message and one message only, and that is verse 4 of Galatians 1, that Jesus Christ died for the sins of humanity and that by his grace we can now be uh, adopted into the family of God and saved from our sins. That's the entirety of his message. There was no, and then you got to do this. And so the Judaizers had two big issues, Number, well, three really. Number one, they're questioning Paul and his authority, just like in Corinth. But their attack here was that Paul's not a first-class apostle because he wasn't one of the apostles. He's sort of a second-hand apostle. He wasn't one of the 12 that followed Jesus, and we were brought up by one of those 12, possibly Peter or some others. So they question his authority as an apostle. That's why he writes, by the way, in verse 1, he's an apostle not from men, but through Jesus Christ. The second thing they're questioning is this idea of how can you possibly have a Christian faith without the Jewish roots? These Gentiles, what are we doing here? This is anarchy. It's a racial and ethnic issue. They need to become Jews like us first. If they're not like us, they are outside the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. They need to go through all the same things like us. And so the Judaizers were preaching, as Paul puts it, another gospel. That says that if you want to be saved, you need to be saved through this method. And it included circumcision for men and all those kinds of things. And then the third issue is that they believe that Paul's teaching is reckless. You can't do that, Paul. You can't teach grace and not teach the law. If you only teach grace, people are going to sin. And so they, they, they feel that Paul's just being reckless, he's being careless with the gospel, he's not a real apostle, and he's leaving people outside the grace of, of God because they're not, follow, or they're not becoming Jewish first. And so this is who Paul's dealing with. And so Paul writes in verses 6 through 10 that these men are cursed. And in case you didn't hear me, I'll say it again, they're cursed. He says, if an angel from heaven should come and give you a different gospel... If an angel from heaven should come and give you golden plates with a different gospel or whatever it might be, they are accursed. It is not from me. It is a false gospel, which Paul says, by the way, there is no other gospel. It's sitting and promoting a system that cannot save them. And and it's more than just a system thing. Because notice this, in verse 6, he says, I'm astonished, he's just blown away, That you are so quickly deserting what? Say it out loud. Let's try that one more time. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him. Him. They're not deserting one branch or philosophy of Christianity so that they can go follow another one. Paul says, what you're doing is abandoning Jesus and chasing something completely different. And, and he's harsh about how he says it, because as that sentence go on, he says, you're deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ, and you're turning to a different gospel. And that word different right there, those of you that like to make little notes and everything in there, it's a weird word. The word different here can be translated in two different ways that in one level seem to be completely, like have nothing to do with each other until you dig a little bit le- deeper. In one sense, different means reverse. So the idea would be, we are going this way, and now we have changed our mind, we have reversed course, and now we're going a different way. But also, in Greek culture at this time, that specific word would also get used to refer to as, to refer to, and this isn't me, this is just what they said, refer to as homosexual behavior or interactions. Slash, and the word they were talking about is perversions. So Paul is using harsh words here, and this is what he's saying. There is this gospel, and these men have come in, and they are fooling you into abandoning Jesus and following a perverted gospel, a different gospel. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, it's kind of in their concerns, but let's just break it down for a minute, and then we'll be done. Two things that this means. Two different ways that the churches in Galatia and that we still today can really easily pervert The one true gospel of Jesus Christ. The first is this way. We can have a bent towards legalism. So you can pervert the gospel of Christ by having a bent towards legalism. In other words, saying, this is too easy to be true. This is too good to be true. We can't just preach grace. Our children will go off the rails if they don't know law. We can't just preach grace. I can't just go to someone on the streets of Medford and say, All you need to do is have faith in Jesus Christ. None of the other stuff even matters. It's the faith in Jesus that saves you, his grace, his work. I can't just say that because what would they do? They might keep drinking. We can't do that. And so what we do is we go, okay, what we need is, yes, the grace of Jesus. It's important, amen? But we need the grace of Jesus plus this stuff. It it can't just be grace. We've got to add something in because if we don't, look, I understand God's heart, but he needs a little help here. So it's going to be the grace of Jesus added to this. And this is what the Judaizers are doing here. They're saying, okay, look, it's not just grace. You've left out the food commandments. You've left out the dietary laws. You've left out all of these other things that are what keep us in the grace of God. And Paul's teaching something completely different. Well, Paul's teaching is that in Christ, we have a mediator between God and us. A mediator, in other words, someone who knows us, someone who knows our situation, someone who knows our needs and our difficulties, and who represents us before God. We have a relationship with a person. And Paul's saying, why would you, do, why would you abandon that and try to go back to this situation where now you're trying to earn the things that God has already given you. And man, we can do this so easily. How are we saved? We would always say by what? By grace through faith. Is that all? Well, yeah, but I mean, you got to read your Bible. Um, and, and you, you got to give. That's important to God. And don't sleep around. Christians don't do that. And all of a sudden you start building this legalistic list that says the way you get saved is you have faith in Jesus and do this, 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 this. And you know what that does? That creates the little boy that I grew up to be who's laying in bed at night looking within himself trying to find a reason why he's saved. And it's exhausting and frustrating and perverted. It is a false gospel. Jeff. You cannot teach this. There's children in this church. This is Paul teaching this. And and what Paul says here if we try to create a gospel that adds to it this, 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 and this, it's in vain. It does not save. He says there is no other gospel. Our works do not save us. This scale does not exist. The only thing that saves is the work of Jesus Christ. Even the Bible tells us that even in our best intention, if our righteousness before God is an attempt to earn favor and prove that we deserve to be on the team, it's filthy rags. And you should Google, like, go look that up and see what that actually translates as. It's bad. It does not save. It does not work because what we are doing is we're still looking within trying to find salvation. I'm trying to rest my assurance of salvation on my behavior, not on the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. And when he hung on the cross and said, it's finished, he meant, Jeff, stop doing that. How did that not get an amen? Can you believe that? You didn't even amen. (laughs) Did, Did anyone else grow up in this? Like you knew this stuff. And you know the law. And look, is it beautiful? Is it important? Is it good for us? Absolutely. But if we're looking at this law, trying to find a reason why God loves us, it destroys us. And it creates a group of people who eventually end up walking away from the faith going, I tried Christianity. It just didn't work for me. You didn't try Christianity. You tried you. You tried living a life worthy of earning the affections and a favor of God when the gospel itself promises you that's impossible. Trying Christianity means that when I'm that boy laying there in bed going, I don't even know if I'm saved, I'm so bad, I'm so wretched that then I come back to the truth that wait a minute, in the midst of my sin, in the darkest of the darkest of my life, I have a Savior who willingly gave his life for me and says, just believe, Jeff. Don't believe in Jeff. Jeff, just believe. That's a gigantic difference. That's the difference between legalism and the gospel. I'm saved strictly because Jesus Christ is good and merciful, and that's it, period, end of discussion. There's a great book on this, if you wanna read further, by uh, Billy Graham's grandson, Tulian, it's a weird name, but um, it's called Jesus Plus Nothing Equals Everything. Jesus is my foundation, not my works. The, the second way that we can pervert these things is that we can still, though, have a bent towards license. We gotta do this one quick. But we can go, so I'm saved by grace? Awesome. I will do whatever I want then, and people do this. And it seems like, oh, don't pe- people don't really do this. Yeah, a lot of us do, because what we do is we compartmentalize our life. And we go, okay, Jesus is, I need Jesus on Sunday, and I'm going to need Jesus to get into eternity, but I'll rely on the grace in between now and then so that I can go just do whatever I want. And so we go through life just having fire insurance, like, Jesus is there when we need him, and we can come to him and feel better about ourselves on Sunday because all the junk we did Saturday night and Friday night, but this is the idea. You're claiming that you that you're, uh, have a relationship with a Savior that makes zero difference whatsoever in your life from day to day. And you're compartmentalized. That's not a relationship. And that perverts the gospel of Jesus Christ as well. What Paul is saying is this. We have been saved by a person. So why would we abandon the person of Jesus Christ? Either to pursue legalism or to pursue license when each, the end of every one of those is the same. Death, depression, discouragement, failure, frustration, fear. And Paul is calling us as a church back to the person of Jesus Christ and an assurance of our salvation that's based on him. Not looking within for a reason why we're Christians. That thing doesn't exist. But looking at him and the grace and goodness of God for the assurance of our salvation. This is what he's calling us to. And so here's the conclusion. This is just our intro and I'm done. But here's the thing. Here's what you have to remember as we're talking about this. You're like, the gospel, that's good, man. We should preach the gospel because all those lost people need to hear it and get saved. You're right, but here's the truth of this letter. Who's Paul writing? He's writing to Christians. He's saying, hey, Christian, you need to remember the gospel. You've fallen away from the gospel, you've been tricked into perversions of the gospel. And you're believing now somehow that the good things you're doing as a Christian are the evidence of who you are have been saved. Or you're constantly still fighting for approval from God by doing all of these things. It's not working. It's a false gospel. You're exhausted and frustrated and it will not take you anywhere good. You need to come back to Jesus Christ. And you need to come back to a complete and total assurance and rest on the person of Jesus Christ. And stop dealing with Works. And and there's a great picture of this, and we'll be done. In ancient days, in the the days of the walled cities, um, hobbit people go there maybe, but in the days of like uh, walled cities and all that kind of stuff, when an invading army was on its way, Wanting to seek to take down that city. There would always be scouts out somewhere. They'd be able to see the army that's coming, and news would come back to the city. Hey, there's a problem. There's an enemy coming. They're going to surround us. There's a battle coming. We got to figure things out. And so they would get the army together, and the king would go out and fight with them. Think of the stories in, in, uh, in Samuel. The whole David and Bathsheba story happened what? There was a time when the kings were supposed to go off to war. David should have been off to war. He sent his boys instead, stayed back, got in trouble totally different story. But this is that time. So there's an enemy army coming. Get the army together. We have to do this. And the king of the city would lead the army out to fight. Now, the rest of us, well, let's just, guys, don't get offended. We're not, we didn't make the army. I don't know. We're too small. We're too whatever. But we were here. We're taking care of the women and being made fun of by the actual soldiers. So here we are back in the city, right? So, so the soldiers, the king and the army has gone out to fight to try to defend us. And we are now inside the walled city awaiting news. Who knows how long it's going to take. When the battle happens, we're just waiting news. But at a certain point, a herald would come from the battlefield and bring to the city information. Really important information. And it would come in one of two ways. If the king lost, if our army was defeated and our king was not able to deal with the threat that was coming, the herald coming back to the city would come with instructions. He would come back and say, if you want to be saved, here's what you need to do batten down the hatches, close, those are boats, aren't they, hatches? I I went pirate all of a sudden for some reason. Um, Close the windows, bar the gates, reinforce everything, get some archers up on the top, Um, all of those kind of things. We have work to do. Our king was not able to defeat the enemy. He alone was not enough, and the threat's still there. So you all have to pitch in and play a part now, and instruction would come, frantic instruction. This is what we have to do. But... If the king won and defeated the enemy that was outside the gates, then the herald came back literally with what was referred to as the gospel. The good news that the king has defeated the army and the king would parade in and there would be celebrations and worship. There's no instruction, what do we gotta do? Nothing, he won, receive him. You mean I don't have to get my bow and arrow? I didn't even fight, no, isn't that awesome? But I I didn't draw a sword, I didn't defend anything, surely there's work to do. No, he killed them all. Our king has won, we are free. That's the testimony of the heralds that came back with the gospel. And so church, some of us need to be reminded to come back to the gospel. Some of you are leaning on faith and effort, trying to earn from God that which he has already freely and completely given you. And that is his grace and his love and his mercy. And maybe for a season, Galatians is going to be good for us because we can stop leaning on our efforts and just enjoy him just celebrate the reality that he loves us, that he has saved us, that the enemy has been vanquished and he has no need of our efforts to earn our salvation. It has been purchased in full because our king, our savior, Jesus Christ has gone and defeated sin and rose from the dead. And we've been given the gospel. And now guess what? Our king's coming back. And so now we're here in this city and we can celebrate and we can spread the news. Did you hear? He won. Man, get the party going. There is good news and we can share it with the entire city so that when the king returns, the entire city is standing on their seats, standing on their rooftops, cheering, Hosanna. The king has been victorious. He is here. He has defeated our enemy. We are free. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Will you stand with me?